and welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy. I'm the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by uh, a few of my colleagues today. First, uh, Ryan Sweet, uh, head of real-time economics. Uh, it's good to have you, Ryan. And we're going to spend a lot of time with you today, I suspect, because today is Jobs Day, and we got a big jobs report. And I know you're you've dug deep into that, so we'll come back to that in just a second. And then Chris Dorides, deputy chief economist. Um, and always uh, good for a few jokes. So uh, we'll see how that goes today. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll count on those. And then uh, we also have Dante D'Antonio. Dante, uh, Dante, how long have you been with us? How long have you worked uh, at Moody's Analytics? My five-year anniversary is this weekend. Oh my goodness! Five years. Are we now? Do you get a? Does Moody's give you anything for a five-year anniversary? Oh, you have a certificate. Got, <laughs> certificate. I think you got to make it to ten. Yeah. Did you guys get? You got your tenure, right? I mean, you got an email saying, "Congratulations, ten-year anniversary." Uh, go to this website, pick out what you want. Uh, do you guys remember what you picked out? What'd you pick out, Chris? I got a toaster. Like oh. A, one of those. Uh, How did that work out for you? To, it's still it's still going. So you know. Still going. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Positive. <laughs> and uh, Ryan, what did you get? I think I got a set of kitchen knives. Now that's oh. a good choice. I'd say yeah, that's a good choice. They're nice. They worked. Yeah. I got Something a bike. To to. You got a, bike. got a bike. Wow. Yeah. It didn't work. It really <laughs> didn't work. Yeah. I mean, that could be uh, me. You know, so wait, I Rudy's didn't buy you, but they didn't buy you the Peloton. No, 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 not the Peloton. This <laughs> I was, was going to say. This is. Actually, it was different it list. Year? No, no, no. Wait, it wasn't ten years. It was my twenty-year anniversary, right? Because when when uh, uh, I sold the company to Moody's, I was grandfathered in as an employee, so I was already a fifteen-year uh, year-long uh, year employee when we signed signed on with Moody's. And so, and at my twentieth, I think I got a thirtieth, but I can't even remember what that prize was or what that gift was. But I know for my twentieth, it was a, it was a, like a bike, well before Peloton, and it and it's still next to my Peloton. Yeah, still next <laughs> to my Peloton. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Um, so Dante, uh, I'm sorry. I guess there's no five year gift. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you'd know by now. Sorry. Sorry about this phone. We'll let this pass. <laughs> sorry. This is just you know the way it goes. This is uh, uh, this is live ra live radio. Uh, unvarnished. Uh, unvarnished podcast. Um, so, so Dante, you came to us from Bureau of Labor Statistics. Is that correct? Uh, I worked there first, and then I went to grad school, and then I came here. Oh, I didn't know that. So you, so you, uh, out of undergrad, you went to BLS. How long were you at BLS? About two years. You, you know, Dante, you are lagging. You, you, your uh, connection is pretty bad, I think. So I don't, I don't know. If you got anything open, I'd close it, see if that helps. Um, and uh, then you went to grad school. Where'd you go to grad school? Lehigh. Oh, Lehigh. Lehigh. Oh, very good. And w did you do a, a, th a thesis on labor market conditions? Because you were- My dissertation was actually in uh, sports economics. No way. no way. Really? Yeah. Oh, what was uh, it? Labor market right, implications are- <laughs> Uh, it was three three parts: valuations of college basketball players, uh, the impact of holdouts on NFL contract negotiations, 
and the impact of sports arenas on local labor markets. Oh, that, all three of those are pretty interesting topics. I mean, uh, are, in your first essay on uh, it was college basketball, did you did you like determine what the market value was of college uh, ball players? Was that part of it? Yeah, we tried to estimate the marginal revenue product, basically, of of college basketball players, and it worked out to be, you know, on average, something like two hundred thousand dollars. Which, you know, there's a huge disparity in distribution where you know superstar players at big programs are probably worth you know five, ten, twenty times that much, and then your average bench player at you know a run of the mill school is worth almost nothing to the university. So, so what were the highest valued players worth, roughly? Uh, in excess of a million dollars a year. And that was back, well, now five, six, seven, eight years ago. So, yeah, I don't know if it's Yeah, that data was late 2000s, yeah. Late 2000s, yeah, right. Um, well, good. Well, thank you for joining because you uh, are now uh, are doing a lot of work in labor market, on labor market issues. And, uh, of course, this is, again, jobs day, so we're going to be spending a fair amount of time on the labor market. And I just want to... Uh, to call out that you and I have worked on a number of papers and our most recent papers coming out soon, coming soon, is on uh, racial uh, inequality, racial bias, and its macroeconomic consequences. And you've done some really good uh, empirical work there that uh, we'll be, we're writing about and we're going to publish in the next week or two. So uh, stay tuned for that. So uh, Thank you for that. Okay, uh, as the listener uh, of the pod of this podcast knows, uh, there's three parts to it. Part one uh, is uh, the data. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, what happened in the past week, maybe what's going to happen in the coming week. Talk about our uh, favorite favorite statistics and, and jobs will be number one. Second, the big topic, and well, you know, it's Jobs Day. We're going to talk about jobs and some of the. A lot of questions uh, surrounding the labor market, a lot of odd things going on. <clears throat> so uh, we'll, we'll talk uh, about that. And then finally, I'll bring it all together at the end. So let's, uh, let's start off. Uh, Ryan, uh, what's your statistic of the week? What's your data point? I'm going to give you guys an underhanded softball. Underhanded softball. Okay. Because uh, last week you gave as, me a lot of grief. For... As, a, as, a, as opposed to an overhanded <laughs> softball. <laughs> An underhanded assault. There, no, there is no such thing as an overhanded right. assault. Yeah, we, we need to sit down. We, we <laughs> right. There, right there. That's baseball. That's, that's yeah, baseball. baseball right. That's baseball. That's baseball. I so, I'm so confused. Okay. Yes, right. All right, well, while you're confused, I'll give you the number. 77.1%. Uh, 77.1%. Your clue uh, is it's in the employment report, okay. and it's a uh, – very important indicator of gauging where we are. Oh, is that the EPOP for prime age workers? Correct. Ah, EPOP. Good job. Being, what's EPOP? You want to tell everyone what EPOP is? That was just the prime age employment to population ratio. Yeah, right. And why is that? Why do you think that's such an important statistic? Well, I mean, throughout the, the last expansion, that did the best job of uh, showing how much slack or the lack thereof uh, in the labor market was throughout the business cycle. So just like we are now, we're hearing lots of, you know, anecdotes, you know, in the beige book, the ISM survey that there's labor shortages, uh, but there aren't labor shortages. It's just a very difficult hiring environment. There's a lot of people that are between 25 and 54, which 
is the prime age uh, that are uh, you know, sitting on the sidelines uh, for various reasons that we'll, we'll probably dig a lot deeper yep, into. But uh, at least historically, once you get to 80%, that's a good you know, threshold of that's when we're at full employment. Uh, anytime you're below it, it's, you know, there's still, you know, some slack in the labor market and why we want to look at f- full employment is, you know, once we hit that, that's when we start to develop you know, a lot of inflationary pressures. And that's when the Fed will start getting worried that this transitory inflation will turn to something worse. Right. And uh, as I recall, EPOP for prime age workers, 25 to 50 years, 54 years old hit its low back in April of last year at 70%. So it was a little bit above 80 coming into the pandemic, it fell 10 percentage points. And as you, as you point out, we're now back to 77.1%. So that means we're three percentage points away from that full employment threshold. Correct. Okay. And if everything kind of sticks to script in terms of job growth, participation, everything, when do you think EPOP will be uh, over that rising or approaching or rising over that at 80% threshold. Well, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's close to when you're, you're expecting it. So end of next year, early 2023. Exactly. I, that's yeah. exactly it hurts. right. It hurts to yeah, say it This hurts. is what happens when I give you an underhanded softball. <laughs> yeah. I swing and I hit it. I hit it. Yeah. You hit it. Uh, I hit it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that the way I, uh, and I think that e, I think you're absolutely right about EPOP. I think that's probably if I had to pick one kind of measure of the state of where we are in the business cycle and the labor market conditions and and how close we are to full employment, it would be uh, EPOP. But the other way to think about it is uh, in terms of job growth, right? So we got 500. Oh, by the way, uh, you do, do deserve accolades, right? Because your expectation for the number for the today was. 600k i believe right on the right. and it came in at 559 so mm-hmm. uh, very, that's great uh, very very close and the consensus was 673 673 and the range was around 250 to 1 million right right so right so so anyway uh, great job i mean you always do a great job on the uh, you're one of the best in the world if not i i think i actually think you are the best it will you know you'll ultimately Everyone will recognize this, but I, I recognize it first. You are the very best at, at doing this. So, uh, and you, you did a great job with today's number. But the way I kind of, the other way of kind of thinking about getting back to full employment is also in terms of, of uh, employment, uh, you know, getting all those 7.6 million jobs were still down from the pre-pandemic level back. And then some, because of course, the labor force continues to grow and you need to absorb those workers and uh, participation. And if you look at job growth, average monthly job growth, including May in the past several months, it's, it's about 500K per month. Mm-hmm. So if you say, okay, that's what I think it's going to continue to do more or less going forward, uh, that means we'll get those 7.6 million jobs back and then some by the end of 2022. Uh, and the other way, another way of thinking about it is, 500k a month. That's probably enough to get the unemployment rate moving down a tenth of a percentage point every month or two. And again, if you do the arithmetic, we're at five eight. We'll get below four, uh, closer to three and a half by late 2022. So another way of thinking about about this. So let me ask you this, Ryan. Um, what was there anything in the report that really it felt like it was a kind of down the fairway using another sports metaphor, kind of 
uh, report. Was there anything in the report that you found surprising? I mean, I, for, when I first looked at, you know, where the forecast was wrong, it was in retail and there was a big drop in uh, grocery stores. And I just couldn't figure out, you know, I think it was down more than 20,000. It just seems odd. You know, I know restaurants are coming back, but you know, well, it just seemed a little bit fluky that you saw a drop there. Second well, you know what? You, you, yeah, second month, last month was even larger. I think it was, mm -hmm. I didn't look at the revision, but it was down 50 or 60,000, I think, last month. So, but don't you just describe that to people going out instead of therefore? Yeah, I think so. A few groceries, right. Okay. But the other thing that was surprising was uh, motor vehicle and parts manufacturing. That was up oh, more than yeah. 20,000. You know, with all the, you know, uh, semiconductor or the chip problems uh, and lack of production and lean new uh, car uh, inventory. I think this is a tentative good sign that we might start to get more production, even though, you know, the supply chain issues aren't resolved, but hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, pick up production soon. Yeah. Hey, let me, before I ask Dante uh, about his statistic, and I'm sure it's, a, it's a one on the jobs numbers too, is uh, 600K, uh, was there some secret sauce, something that you can tell us about, you know, what you're doing that got you closer than consensus? And by the way, again, just so everyone knows, you do this consistently. Uh, you you beat the consensus perspective and you get closer to the actual uh, employ, uh, employment and other statistics. You 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 get very very close. So in in this case, was there something that you uh, you you did that uh, got you closer? than than the consensus well i don't want to give away beans. like how the sausage is made but okay I mean, there, there's there's a couple things that uh, that have been working really well recently and uh -huh. I've, i'm sticking with that so this model has worked really well uh -huh. gets you in the ballpark and then of course like there's some you know idiot uh you know intricacies to each month that you gotta to factor in uh off the podcast i'll, I'll give you a clue as oh, long really? as you promise okay. Not, to, not to go on CNBC or CNN and be like, this is, you know, this is the, <laughs> the, the new golden ticket. Oh, uh, that's a tough one. I don't know. Okay. I promise I'll do that. I won't tell anybody. I'm good. At, I'm good at secrets. Are you um, putting more weight on uh, claims, Ryan? Less, less weight. Less, less weight. So yeah. it's still like for, uh, versus, signal. yeah, versus pre-pandemic. Yeah. Yep. I put a lot less weight on claims. And I guess a lot less weight on ADP too, right? Because that was... On the hot side and by the way dante puts together that adp number so uh you approve it though so yeah yeah I, yeah well i have no choice you tell me i have to approve it. yeah when that um, number came out i emailed dante and yeah i i was like speechless i was like what is that there's i was like there's no way we're getting close to a million one month down the road we're going to get close to a million just it wasn't going to be in may well, I don't know. I mean, Dante, what do you what do you say about that? The ADP for everyone who doesn't know is a human resource company has a, uh, uh, clients that uh, account for about the same size of the job market that the BLS surveys every month. So it's a very large look into the labor market, <clears throat> and I mean, looking at the numbers. Uh, it was strong. There was no sign of any softness or weakness in that report. And, and, and again, it came, came in just south of a million, and that's private sector. It doesn't include government. Government was up pretty solidly uh, in the month, according to BLS. Did, so, Dante, what did you see anything in the ADP number that indicated any kind of weakness to you? I, I didn't see it. Nothing no? in particular. I think, you know, to Ryan's point about claims, I think we're 
I think we're giving claims a little more weight now than we should be in the model. I see. That may and be to be fair, yeah, pre-pandemic, I, I put a lot of emphasis on ADP. Yeah. It was helpful. I, I just think now the way, I mean, claims was, you know, in probably everybody's, you know, employment model. And, you know, those that are you know, still wedded to that are, you know, getting larger forecast errors, I think. Yeah, although even if you look at the what I, we call the pure ADP, you know, it does not it's, it, it's not doesn't go through the model. It's not affected by anything other than taking the ADP data and making sure that we could, it you know it lines up to BLS in terms of industry weighting and the uh, company size weighting. That was also strong. I mean, it was really strong. No, no sign of any weakness. Like the declining construction jobs, that did not show up in ADP at all. And that's a, you know ADP. ADP covers that pretty well. So that's, that was surprising to me. My gut anyway, is that once we get all the revisions, yeah, it, it won't it, close the gap between yeah. BLS and ADP, but it, it will make it look much less glaring. Yeah. Actually, I want to come back to that because I, I have a theory I want to pass by you guys, see what you think. But, so, so Dante, what's your statistic? You have one, right? You were prepared. You came prepared, didn't you? I had, I mean, I had you know, three. Not anyone gets case. on this podcast. You are invited on this podcast. It is... No, like you know an honor to be on this podcast so you, okay i had i had three just in case somebody stole one so i was prepared <laughs> you're prepared okay very good Four hundred and thirty-one thousand. Oh, that's easy i got that one. Oh, is that is that uh don't tell me is that private sector employment gain nope no it's not oh okay chris do you know what is it again 400 uh, and what Oh, 431,000. Um, I got it. This, this is a good it. one. I got it. I really this like this one. I was going to pick this one, but then I knew you guys were going to scream at me that this is too much in the weeds. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I think this was the most positive thing in the report. All right. Go ahead, Chris. Really? The, uh, oh, oh, wait, wait. Don't say it. Don't tell. I, I get another <laughs> thing. The increase in household. No, I couldn't. No, household employment. No, that's not right. Uh, I give up. What is it? What is, what's, I, I, I'll give the Chris? guess. It's, uh, it's the uh, decline in the long-term unemployed. Exactly. That's right. Okay, very good. It's the, by far the largest decline since the pandemic. It's only the second decline, I think, at all since the pandemic started, and by far the largest. That's interesting. Uh, and give us context. Uh, where, How many long-term unemployed are there, and where does it stand relative to pre-pandemic, that kind of thing? Sure. It, that decline brought it to 3.8 million, which is still you know, much well elevated. Pre-pandemic, it was about one and a quarter. Okay, so we're still, well, we're still up... Uh, one point no no wait two point four million yeah about two and a half million around there and is that when you say long-term unemployed that's not quite consistent with permanently unemployed but they're probably very closely related right long-term unemployed is unemployed for more than yeah. 26 weeks right right okay okay that's a good hey that was a really good one dante i, I thought that was great i don't know what ryan's talking about you know no i said that that was a good number <laughs> It was probably the most important one in their whole report. Yeah, yeah. So one yeah. question, uh, I have my opinion, but a number of states started, you know, in early May saying that they were going to end U, uh, the expanded UI benefits starting in June and July. Uh -huh. Could that have contributed to the drop? I, I don't think so. I think that's going to no. be in June and July, but I don't know. Well, that, 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 those announcements actually were kind of after the survey week too, I think. That was in, uh, I think the first one was May 6th and then okay. they started trickling out. I mean, it's yeah. really close to the reference week, so. Yeah, I, I, no, maybe, maybe. 
I don't think they did. Yeah, I don't yeah, think so. yeah, yeah, too close. Too, too early. Too soon. Yeah, I mean, you got to be really paying attention. Um, Chris, what's your statistic? So that was actually mine. So I'll give you another one. I oh, so you case. came unprepared, is what you're saying? <laughs> that was my that was my best one. No, no, I'll give you my the other one is uh, five. He shows up late. Yeah. 5.4%. 5.4%. It's it's a quarter and quarter seasonally adjusted annual rate. Ryan knows Ryan, it. Dante Ryan should is, know this. I Dante know that should know. Dante knows Is that productivity right. growth? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Productivity there growth. That was, so that's, that's, that's pretty strong. Is that, that's about as strong. That's quite as, strong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um I mean about as strong as it gets or does it get stronger than that i mean in history in it's historical. in uh coming out of recessions after the great recession was a bit stronger i can't remember how high it got um but that's you know that's to be expected so given where we are i i do think it's strong and i think it points to potential for some extended faster productivity growth and that's you know given the demographic discussion we had a couple of weeks ago it's it, yeah it's critical for our long run economic growth story yeah that's that's a good one hey would you guys mind if i if i um gave you a couple statistics that aren't uh related to the labor market just to mix it up a, a little bit because we're going to come back to the labor market mm -hmm. just a second okay and you you i'm guessing you would you'll know these two pretty quickly but i thought they were they came out this week and i thought they're very important uh, first is 13 percent. what is 13 percent? what statistic is 13 percent? oh house price growth yeah, house price growth, core logic house price growth. And uh, did, did you look at that release carefully, uh, uh, Chris? Do you want to talk about that at all? I mean, so what you saw in that report? It, it, it feels like a you know a year ago. I I don't remember much more than the thirteen uh, percent year over year. Right. Uh, well, do you remember which states had the highest rates of house price growth over the past year? In the, I believe in it was Idaho. Idaho. Uh -huh. Yep. Twenty percent. Arizona. Uh, South Dakota, of course, small state, but kind of 20% growth rates. Obviously, that you can't sustain that for very long. Uh, that's really uh, boom-like kind of uh, house price growth. And goes to our podcast last week. And here's one more. I'm going to give you one more. And uh, this is important, I think, also 2.25%. 2.25%. And if you're a careful reader of economic view, and I know Dante is because he's you, you are managing economic view now, aren't you, Dante? You, you, you're, I'm, uh, I'm slowly trying to wrestle some of it away from Ryan. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Ryan, Ryan has been running that from since the beginning of time, and he's slowly handing that off to Dante. <laughs> so, okay. Slowly. Uh, but you guys, so both of you guys are very careful consumers of that website and all the releases. So what is 2.25%? No, really? It's oh. not inflation expectations, is it? Yes, it is. It is oh, inflation okay. expectations. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, that's pretty high, actually. And it's moving up pretty fast. Now, it's, it's moved up quickly most recently uh, because of uh, consumer surveys. The Michigan uh, University of Michigan survey asks one year ahead and five year ahead inflation expectations. And both have moved up. And, and that, I think, Ryan, you pointed out that that tends to be more transitory. It's related to gas prices and and food uh, prices. You know, what's, yeah, what's happening right now. Uh, so that may not be you might not place as much weight on that. But um, you, also the 
uh, survey of professional economists, which we belong to, that has also pushed up, and all of that combined, because that inflation expectations measure that I, I'm uh, that I'm pointing to, is a combination of uh, a range of inflation expectation measures. And 2.25 uh, percent. This is core consumer expenditure deflator inflation. That's at the high end of the range. You would think that they would would tolerate the Federal Reserve would tolerate. The Fed mm-hmm. wants it to be a little bit above two, but much much above two and a quarter percent. I, I think that would be. Uh, they must be getting a little. They might get a little uncomfortable with that, I would think. Do you think so as well? Or yeah, yeah I would agree. Yeah, you would agree. But if you look yeah. at like, I mean, we factor in market-based expectations as well. But the market seems to be buying into the Fed's narrative that this is going to be transitory. Five-year, five-year forwards. When you adjust it for, you know, the gap between the CPI and PC deflator is spot on two percent. I mean, it seems like that's what they're buying into now. Uh, but we'll see if that holds up. Yeah. Very good. And remember, we we had each of us identified one statistic that we were going to call out every single week, let people know what it is, and uh, give them a little bit of context. Uh, uh, Ryan, what was your statistic that you that you wanted to mention? The ten-year treasury yield. Yeah. And so, where do we stand on that? By the way, in the con with regard to ten-year treasury yield, that was down today, right? Right. So, how do you interpret that? I think we're in this period where. I don't want to say the May employment report was bad news, but uh, you know when you get data that comes in a little bit weaker than the consensus, not significantly weaker, but just weak enough where markets know, all right, the Fed's not going to claim this is you know further sub- uh, substantial improvement in the economy and you know are moving closer to tapering or raising the Fed funds rate. So data just below the consensus is actually you know likely going to be perceived as dovish by the bond market. Got it. So the 10-year yield, I think, ended today at 1.55. Was it 1.55? I thought it was. I okay. thought it was off five or six basis points. And, and and that's a pretty big move in one day for the bond market. So they it looks like bond investors did, in fact, interpret the jobs number as uh, rubbish, that you know, mm-hmm. it's not enough job growth to really caused the Fed to change its path for future normalization. Yeah, because it seems like the bond market is getting a little nervous that, you know, this tapering announcement could come sooner, you know, as early as, you know, uh, the Jackson Hole synopsis in, in August. You know, I think the Fed's going to wait until to make that announcement until a little bit later. But every data point that comes in next week, we get the CPI. I mean, that's going to be really, really important in assessing, you know, when the Fed's going to taper. But I mean, if you look through the ups and downs in the tenure, it's been moving sideways, or it's been very range bound for you know several weeks now. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Chris, what was your statistic that you call uh, UI, out? UI claims weekly. Yeah. And what were they? Uh, three hundred eighty-five thousand mm-hmm. yesterday. So an improvement. Um, I think it was four hundred five the week before. So moving in the right direction, um, certainly. And good. Still, and good is what? What is good? Two fifty, three hundred. Yep, it's pretty good. So we're yeah. we're 385 moving south, but we got a long way to go before it's yeah. at a place that you'd feel, hey, this is a good economy. You're right. We're in a good place. Okay. Dante, do you have a statistic that you follow on a regular basis that we should be following? Uh, just to give you a sense of where things are, where they're headed. You don't have to have one. I just was curious. I mean, you, know, you, you, you probably have secrets like Ryan. Ryan. Ryan holds out on me. He doesn't give me... You know, you see what he says? He says, I'll tell you afterwards. And then he disappears very quickly after the podcast is over. I, here. I don't hear from him. Do you, so do you have any, you, you're going to tell us what your, your, your secret sauce is, or uh, do you have any uh, suggestions of, on what we should be looking at? 
no secret. I think like Chris, I mean, claims, I think on a weekly basis is the most important thing that I watch. Okay. All right. Very good. And the statistic I called out was copper prices. And they, uh, I think I, I looked late earlier today, it was like $4 and 55 cents a pound. And uh, as you may recall, anything over $4, that's consistent with a very strong economy, global economy with uh, 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 significant inflationary pressures. Um, so that, uh, and that hasn't come down to any appreciable degree. It's leveled off over the last few weeks, but it, so it's not rising, uh, which is a good thing, but it still remains very, very elevated. Okay, uh, that's, that's uh, the statistic. Anything else on the statistics you wanna say real fast before we move on to the big topic and we go deep into the labor market? No? Just to follow, what about oil at 70? Does that concern you? Uh, in what way, Chris? Inflationary pressures, you mean? Yeah, is it, yeah. Is it indicative or is it, or uh, are consumers going to start reacting to higher gas prices? Or... Well, I think that does contribute to the inf higher inflationary expectations, but I, I don't, I'm not overly concerned about it because there's still a surfeit of oil out there globally. Just, just for give you people a sense of the numbers before the pandemic, uh, we were globally consuming and producing just about 100 million barrels a day of oil uh, on the nose. Uh, when the pandemic hit, demand obviously got crushed. We got down to 90 million barrels of oil a day of oil demand. Of course, OPEC cut back. Uh, the the uh, uh, production in the fracking fields here in the U.S. and North America got pulled back as it no, was no longer economic. And that uh, you, uh, supply caught up with the collapse in demand and prices kind of stabilized. <clears throat> and demand is now picking up and supply is a little bit slow to, to pick up, although OPEC is now talk, has started to increase production. And I think this last week decided to increase production again. So I, I expect supply to pick up here and uh, meet demand. And I don't, I don't expect oil prices to go much higher than this. If they did, if they started to spike for whatever reason, uh, in the context of everything else going on, that might be somewhat disconcerting. But at this point, no, $70 is, it's on the high side of fair value, on the high side of equilibrium, but you know, not, not that uh, outside the band of you know, what's a reasonable price, I think. Do you think the economy's you know, cushioned a little bit more from rising oil prices and prices at the pump than it was you know, pre-pandemic? I mean, our sensitivity to oil prices has diminished over a long period of time. But I remember, uh, what's our rule of thumb? Every penny change in retail gasoline prices pre-pandemic reduced consumer spending by 1.1, 1.2 billion over the course of a year. Yeah, that's right. That's we right. have all this excess savings. So I, I think yeah. maybe the, we could be less concerned about, you know, the, the price of the pump on the demand yeah. side. I mean, like for yeah. economic activity, but inflation, that's going to be the Fed's bigger concern. And of course, the other development that was even pre-pandemic is the United States is, uh, is a, a uh, on net uh, is no longer a consu net consumer of oil. It's kind of a wash. We produce, we, we here in the US of that 100 million barrels a day of oil global demand, we're, we're 10 million barrels in a typical economy and we produce about 10 million barrels. So it uh, means much less to us now uh, from a macro perspective. Um, but we should have a podcast on oil. That would be a good one actually, because uh, we've got a lot of, uh, I think, interesting things to say there and some good people maybe bring in climate change as an issue as well. That would be a good thing. But let's turn to the big topic, uh, and that's the uh, job market. And of course, the, uh, the, the, a lot of 
kind of odd things going on in the labor market. The thing that's you know most odd is that uh, we've got a record number of open job positions. This is data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics JOLTS survey, Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey. I think uh, it's a little bit uh, lagged. Uh, I think the last data point is still for the month of March. We're going to get April next week, I think. We got, we got up to 8 million open positions, record high. But at the same time, we have this very high level of unemployment and underemployment. Uh, you know, the 5.8% unemployment rate, uh, 10, uh, I think we're over 10% on the U6, which is the underemployment rate. So, so Dante, how do you square that circle? How can we have, you know, all these record uh, number of open positions and at the same time, uh, have all these unemployed. What's going on fundamentally? And here, I want you to do it this way. I, don't, I want you to begin with the single most important reason, and then we're going to go down to, because uh, I'm guessing there are more, more than one reason here, but I don't want you to lead with your weakest argument. I want to lead with your strongest argument, and, uh, and we'll, we'll, go, we'll go one by one here. So what's at the top of the list of reasons? I, I think it's still... You know, there's a lot more friction in the labor market today, given the turmoil over the last year than we would normally think coming out of a recession. You know, there's more scarring, there's more damage. What does that mean, scarring damage? Concretely, yeah, what, are you, got, what are you talking about? We've got, we've got health care issues, we've got child care issues, we've got you know, a lot more reasons why people are hesitant to rejoin the labor market than they would be in a normal recovery. You know, things that would normally be happening in recovery, you know, just be people trying to find jobs. Now it's not just, should I find a job? It's, do I have to take care of my kids? Do I have to take care of my elderly parents who are sick? Am I worried about getting sick myself? Am I, you know, there's just a lot more concerns today than there are in a normal recovery. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the way I would frame it, I'm curious, I'm, I think I'm saying the same thing you are, but let me just say it. And you tell me if, if you would, you think about it, this is consistent with the way you're thinking about it, that, hey, uh, th this economy uh, came to life uh, very quickly. The economy reopened. I mean, think back six, eight weeks ago, there's still big parts of the economy, particularly obviously in the Northeast and on the West Coast, uh, not so much in other parts of the country, but broadly the economy was still dormant. You had big parts that, of the economy that, that uh, just weren't open or you know, if there were businesses, they were open, they, they were operating at half capacity or quarter capacity. And it really hasn't been until very recently, probably, again, not for the last six, eight weeks, that all of a sudden, the, it was, we felt like vaccinations had succeeded well enough that uh, we could open up to significant enough degree. So everything took off, demand took off, and every employer out there that survived the pandemic put up a help-wanted sign, proverbially speaking, at the same time. And it, it just takes some time for people who, who haven't been working, not on a job, particularly those that have permanently lost their, their previous job, or as you point out, ha having to stay at home to take care of kids or parents or the people who are sick, to get their lives in order to a point where they can just take a, take a job. It's, it's not, it just doesn't happen in a day, it doesn't happen in a week. It doesn't even happen in a month. You know, people got to figure this out, and that's the process that we're in the middle of. Is, is that that's how I kind of think about it? Is in the frame I would use? Is that it sounds like that's similar to what you're saying? 
It is. I think you're, we're, we're expecting an unprecedented recovery in the labor market, something that we've never seen before. And we're expecting that coming out of you know, damage that we've never seen happen before. You, know, you talked about earlier, average job gains are 478,000 so far this year. That, that's below expectation somehow today. You know, at the beginning of the year, that number would have been great. People would have been happy about that. Somehow today we're sitting here saying, what happened to job growth? How, I, have a, I have a quiz for you. How many times in history have we had a five-month period where average job growth was 478,000? How, how many times in history have we had, say that again, how many times in history have we had, we like games job here growth averaging. Uh, inside economics. We love games. We love games. Go ahead. These, how yeah. many times has job growth averaged 478,000 or better over a five-month period, which is what we have happening right now? I, I'd say... Uh, there probably was a period after World War II, so in the 1950s. Uh, I'm guessing probably in the late 60s, you know, Vietnam War, great society, so that's two. Uh, I Probably coming out of the early 80s recession because it went from, you know, uh, high unemployment to rip-roaring very quickly because the Fed lowered interest rates. I'd say that's three. I'd say three times in in history since World War II. What about after the pandemic? Oh when no, no, I'm not I'm including in, that. I'm not including. Oh. That. Yeah, I'm ex I'm excluding yeah. Oh, okay. that. Yeah. yeah, last summer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you have the number right. The timing's a little off. It was once in 1941, once in 1946. Hold it, hold it. 1941. Oh, lead up to World War II. Is that yeah. what that is? And then okay. I see. Is this seasonally adjusted, yes. Dante? Are you looking at seasonally adjusted data? <laughs> It is easily adjusted, yeah. You know, you got to be very precise here. And when you play these games, with this, <laughs> this is key. I don't want any seasonally unadjusted data, you know, messing with Never. 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 Okay, fair, fair We enough. just lost okay. half the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> if you're seasonally adjusted, they're, I'm out. Uh, I'm out of here. No, okay. All right. All right. Okay. 1941. Okay. I got a little bit wrong, I guess. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm 1946, skeptical. which you were. Oh, I got that. I got yeah. that. Yeah. And then okay. 1984, which you, you hit. Oh, Those are the three. Okay. Oh, so what happened in the uh, late 60s, really? Hmm. Uh, okay. Okay. But pretty good. That, that's, I'd say that was a pretty impressive. You were impressed, weren't you? That I, I could do that. I, that was good. And the highest uh, that we ever hit coming out of the Great Recession was only 262,000, the highest average. Oh. That is interesting. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That gives you real context. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Uh, hey, Ryan and Chris, is, uh, you heard the number one reason for this disconnect, seeming disconnect between all the open positions and all the unemployed. Would you put that, Dante, in our, my reason, reasons at the top of the list, or do you have another uh, factor that you would put at the top? Or is that, or are you, are you, is your thinking consistent with that? So pandemic frictions, not only fear of getting the disease, but the fallout in terms of child care, elder care, right? All of that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that's how I would say it. I mean, I, I, I pull, put them all together. Yeah. You know, my issue with these uh, reasons is that they're all um, because, OK, expanded UI benefits. That's clearly we're going to come back news. to that. We will. We will. But that's yeah, clearly yeah. one a big one. But then I, I see them. No, as no, all no. It's not inter, clearly a big one. It's not clearly a big one. That's. That it well, is on the list, but okay, I'm not going to- On the list, you're not going to concede. I'm not conceding, but go ahead. Fair enough, go ahead. I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> but I, I think they're all interrelated, right? Yeah. Um, okay, one reason enough. why I might yeah. be able to you know, take some time to care for my family is because I have a, a, a UI benefit. So what, what is the, uh, what's the real reason uh, 
for not re-entering the, the labor market right away. So that, or and I have some savings, right? So accumulated savings is another reason that great point. I might I might delay. So I don't know. We can we can debate these, and it sounds like we will. But I don't know how much it really adds to the conversation at the end of the day. Which one is the most important? Because I I see that they're all intermingled. Well, it's only important in the context of policy and policy design, because you know I can guarantee you, maybe not for me, but you guys are going to be around at the next recession, and the same thing's going to come up again, and we're going to come right back to this period right now, and we got to get this history right. If we don't get this history right, then we're going to make policy uh, we're going to make policy mistakes in the future. So that's why it's important, I think, yeah, right now. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I- uh, to that point, I think we have to wait then to look back because yo, yo, you know, oh, yeah. all this, all this data is being revised. Where, yeah, and by the way, Dante, you've got to because we got a lot of natural experience. Let's turn to UI for a second. So yeah. you know, obviously on the list, and I I believe it is on the list, is supplemental UI. So as uh, part of the American Rescue Plan, uh, uh, we uh, workers that are unemployed get three hundred dollars a week extra pay on top of the regular UI through the start of September. And the uh, argument has been, and you hear this anecdotally all, all the time from business people in particular, that uh, the UI payment with the supplemental UI, the 300 plus, is greater than the wages that many of these workers were getting you know, in their jobs pre-pandemic. So they don't really have, they don't have an incentive to come back uh, into the workforce, at least not quickly in, 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 uh, into, the, into the labor market. Uh, you know, my, my sense of that is, well, I'm not going to tell you what my sense of it is. So uh, you already have it. You, you already know what I'm, what I'm thinking. What do you guys think of that? Where is that on the list? Is it, it's not the top of the list, but where is it on the list of things that are going on here? Dante? It's pretty far down. It's pretty far down my list. I, I, I don't think it's a non-factor, but I think people are making a much bigger deal out of it than it really is. And I think it goes back to your point about, you know, we have an unprecedented number of job openings. You had essentially all these firms, like you said, hanging their help wanted sign at the same time. It's harder to find workers in that environment when there are, you know, you're competing against everyone, essentially everyone's hiring. And so how hard is it to find, even though there are lots of unemployed workers, there are also, you know, more people than ever that are trying to hire those workers. And so I think we're still hiring people at almost 500,000 a month clip, you know, where job growth is still strong. It's just that for individual firms, it looks like there aren't any workers because they're competing against so many other firms at the same time to get those workers as they come back. Yeah, good way of putting it. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Brian, where would you put it on the list? I'm, clo- I'm similar to Dante, it's probably on the lower end. Uh, but the last beige book kind of made me question that. So the beige book is like, it's a collection of, of you know, anecdotes and conversations that each Fed district has with business uh, businesses in their district. And throughout all the labor market discussion, it was, we're offering $50 uh, <clears throat> payments for people just to show up to an interview. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, we never heard that after the financial crisis. Uh, there was lots of, of mentions that, you know, uh, people were waiting to reenter because of, of receiving government uh, payments, meaning UI. So I still think it's, way below childcare, it's below healthcare concerns, but I don't think it's inconsequential. I think it's yeah. having an impact, but it's just not, I think people are making too much out of it. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Where would you put it on the list? Yeah, I'd, I, I do think the pandemic is number one. Uh, yeah. So 
but I, I, I do think it has some significant impact. So I wouldn't put it too far down the list, I guess, maybe mm -hmm. even, uh, closer to the middle. Um, but again, coming back to my argument that everything yeah. is kind of interdependent. Right. Yeah. So. Well, the, the fortunate thing here, I guess, is that we're, we're going to get, we're getting data points, right? We have a lot of natural yeah. experiments because I think we're up to 25 states that say they're going to end their programs, the supplemental UI program, uh, uh, this month, uh, or in July or in July or August and, and not wait till September. So we'll, we'll, I think we'll be able to use that, uh, that data to uh, get a better sense of this. And, and th in fact, I think Dante, you, you said you were going to do is you're going to do this study when we get the data points, right? Yeah. I'm hoping to, to look at those states yeah, that, yeah, and supplemental UI early and see if there's any noticeable impact there. Okay, I got another, so, I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was gonna throw out another uh, fact from the, um, from the report that might contribute here. Did, did you happen to look at teen unemployment, 16 to 19 year olds? I did not, It's 9.6%, no. 9, 9 the lowest it's been since low. 1953. Yep. Right, so that's an argument now going around that suggests, hey, that's, that's an indication that, you know, these um, there are the the, um, the employers are getting you know looking wherever they can uh, for workers, and because teens can't collect unemployment, therefore, you know they're they're uh, soaking up jobs or taking up jobs. So that that isn't an argument that unemployment benefits are in fact having this uh, disincentive effect. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I'll have to go take a look. Is the decline in unemployment related to stronger job growth or weaker labor force or, or both? Do you know? Um, I don't know. I, I think it's job part. growth. I think I saw that the, the share of teens that are employed is also historically high. So I think it, mm -hmm. it is because of actual job growth in that group. Okay. Oh, interesting. I'll have to go take a look at that. Yeah, I mean, I, the other thing to consider is it's hard to separate all these factors because it could be partly UI, but you could have also worked in the restaurant industry and then go through this pandemic and be like, this wasn't for me. So now you're changing, you know, uh, industry. So you're going into retail or whole or transportation. So it may not be, Oh, UI is keeping me out, but I got to go back to school or do, you know, an online course or something to, you know, retrain and get new skills to get out of an industry that maybe you don't even want to go back to. Yeah, my sense of it, or my just intuition, and I, and I will we'll have to see, uh, do the study, do the work, and look at the data. But my intuition is that what's going on is the UI is giving people just buying them some time. You know, they they uh, they uh, don't necessarily need to take the first job that comes across the transom, and and we probably don't want them to, right? Because we want them to match better with the job. So that means that they'll stay on the job for a longer period of time. You have less turnover. That's good for the employer. That's good for the worker. So it's, it's a feature, not a bug. Uh, but if it, if it just delays the actual uh, date of when someone starts a job by two, three, four, five, six weeks, it's, you're going to see it have an impact on, on, on the, on the labor market, on jobs. So that, that to me feels like, you know, what most fundamentally is going on here, but we'll see. Did you see did you see the employment report that there was 2.5 million people that were not in the labor force, but want a job, but didn't look in the past year? That's a large number of people. And that's yeah. not UI because you would be counted as unemployed to receive right. UI. So, I mean, maybe that's one area yeah. to look into. Yeah. 
Hey, I have one other theory I want to just throw out and see what you guys think. Um, and that is, it does appear that there's a surge in business formation. So uh, we get data from the Bureau of Census on uh, EIN numbers. We talked about this uh, in previous podcasts, employer identification numbers. So you start a company, you, uh, you're going to have to file taxes and uh, unemployment insurance. And so you need a, a taxpayer identification number, an EIN. And, and this data is very timely. I think we have data on a weekly basis, maybe even be daily, I think it's, but I look at the weekly data through the end of May, I believe. And it is just going through the roof, stratospheric. And it's across lots of industry, all the different industries. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, across the board. Could it be the case, uh, two things. One, that there's a lot more job growth that going on than we think. The BLS, when they construct these employment estimates, at least initially based on the survey, is they have a model that they use to predict the number of jobs that are being created by firms that are starting because they obviously can't observe the, the, the starting firms not in their survey. So they make a guesstimate based on a model. That generally works pretty good in an economy that's moving in a straight line, but one like this one, which is in where business formations are surging, pretty likely they're not picking up a lot of what's going on at those new companies. And there's probably a lot of job growth there. So my, that'll, that'll become evident in the data once there's revisions. You know, the BLS will so-called benchmark its, its uh, survey-based information to actual employment accounts from unemployment insurance records. But that's, that's a year or two down the road. It's going to take a while for us to, to see that. So there are a lot more jobs. But uh, that may also be contributing to the issues that businesses are having, right? Getting workers. If, they, if they're starting companies or working for new startups, that makes it much more difficult for established businesses to, to find workers as well. So what do you, what do you think about that? Uh, as a, as a, again, I'm not, that's definitely not on the top of my list, but I don't think it's on anybody's list. So I'm just throwing it out there to see what, what you think about that idea. Yeah, I definitely buy that. I mean, one of the big concerns at the beginning of the pandemic was how BLS was going to handle measurement in April and May of 2020, you know, when all of these firms were dying and they didn't have any way to observe that in real time. And you have the same, and you know, in hindsight, they actually did a pretty good job then, you know, based on the, the revisions that we got, but it doesn't mean they're going to do well on the other side. And so I think there is always the concern that we're missing a big swath of, of jobs that are being created because there's new formation today. Yeah. There are yeah. a lot of the formations for businesses that don't intend to hire. So they're like, you know, self-employed that would show up, not necessarily in the establishment survey. So that 559,000 number we referenced earlier, but the household survey, right? Because people would be counted as self-employed better there. So that would, if your theory holds up, you would have a bigger gap between household employment, you know, of course, adjusting it for all, making it apples to apples uh, versus the uh, current employment, uh, uh, survey. That's true. But if you look at the data, the uh, census gives you the number of EINs for, for all for all new companies. And then those for companies that say they will be adding employees. And that's about 35%. So, you know, it's, it's not a majority, but it's not an inconsequential number okay. of firms that are starting. And it's interesting, a lot of them are in the retail sector, um, in uh, construction and manufacturing and professional services. It's yeah. pretty broad-based, surprisingly broad-based. Restaurants. Oh, restaurants, yep, yeah. yep. Uh, I, I did want to uh, bring up another kind of oddity in the labor market 
that I'm just curious uh, as to how you're, how you're thinking about this is wage growth. Uh, wage growth has held up admirably well during the pandemic. Now, admittedly, there's different measures of wages. Some are not as good as others. Or, you know, the data we get from the employment report on average hourly earnings probably isn't all that useful because it's affected by the mix of jobs, uh, whether it's low paying or high paying mix of occupations. So a lot of measurement issues. But if you look at the uh, employment cost index, the ECI from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, quarterly data, but it controls for all these mix issues, it shows that wage growth for or wage and salary growth for private sector workers through Q1 of 2021 is still about 3% per annum, which is year over year. And actually in Q1 was actually higher than that. It actually surged in Q1 2021. And that's about as about where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, so very curious uh, how you're thinking about that. What, what do you think is going on here? Why, why despite the pandemic and the uh, amazingly uh, you know, the damage it, it obviously is done to the labor market and the economy, uh, wage growth has held up as well as it has. Did, any any perspectives on that, Dante? I, my explanation has always been you know, because of the, the dichotomy and the impact of the pandemic, you had lots of firms that failed, you know, because they were, you know, not in good financial position. And so th- because they failed, they're not weighing on job growth because they're gone completely. The firms that survived, you know, we're still doing fine in large part. They could, you know, work remotely. You know, demand wasn't impacted all that much, and those surviving firms were, you know, not maybe not unaffected, but you know, sort of humming along. Things in professional services and in finance and you know, in high-paying industries with you know generally higher wage growth, you had very little impact in a lot of those industries, and so they've been propping up wage growth. I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's just this uh, uh, the the kind of the frontline in uh, industries they got they got hit hard. Uh, and, and in those industries, you may cut jobs, but you probably won't cut wages for the folks that you keep on, right? Because, you, you know, they're kind of keeping them, the, the businesses operating during the pandemic. But in the rest of the economy that wasn't on the front lines, uh, they kind of navigate, those industries navigated through no problem. And labor markets were exceedingly tight before the pandemic. So uh, uh, wage growth uh, held up pretty well. Is, does that sound right to you, uh, Chris, Ryan? Does that th- theory sound right? It sounds right. I'd, I'd throw out another one. If you, okay. uh, if you go back to the productivity number at the, at the top, if you believe that, if you think that productivity growth is, is genuine and real and we've gotten better at doing our jobs, then it could be that uh, you know, individuals are capturing more of their marginal product, right? So wages yeah. are going up. Well, that would be a great thing, right? Because that's, what, that's the ideal, right? That's the idea. It's a win-win. The workers get higher wages. Businesses can maintain their profit margins, and inflation remains where it is, right? So that's that would be pretty good. So, do you think do you, is that what you think is going on here, Chris? That, I think partially. Because, yeah. You know, workers don't have as much bargaining power certainly as they used to. So, to the extent that you know there is greater productivity. How much of that is being passed on to workers? Some, but probably not all of it. So, so I think it's a contributing factor. But I, Dante's argument probably holds water as well. Right, and and uh, I, I guess the one concern, I mean, wait, strong wage. How can you be against strong wage growth? I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, but I guess the concern would be if there isn't stronger sustained productivity growth, 
and and right. you know the economy continues to improve, unemployment continues to decline, the labor market continues to tighten, wage growth starts to accelerate. That is the recipe for uh, higher inflation, right? Businesses at that point, because they're, you know they're not getting the productivity gains, the wage growth is outstripping the productivity gains. Unit labor costs are rising quickly. If their margins are coming under pressure, they start to raise prices more aggressively, and you have inflation. So that would be the concern, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Or if these, uh, if the wage gains are artificial, right? If they're be, if they are being boosted by, you know, government policy, and once that policy expires, because wages don't, you know, they tend to be sticky, they may not adjust, right? We could end up in a, an environment where that productivity growth is not justifying the higher. Yeah, uh, I guess that's the other point. I mean, I, I heard a theory that you remember last month there was this hurt surge in wages at leisure and hospitality uh, in the leisure hospitality industry, and that was used as an argument for you know labor shortages and UI and that kind of thing. And someone pointed out that uh, that uh, tips are coming back, so there was no tipping because you know, no one was going to a restaurant. All of a sudden, you open up the restaurant, and now uh, people are getting tipped again, and that gets into the into the numbers. And of course, no seasonal adjustment is going to capture that, right? Because it's just has nothing to do with seasonality. So that's uh, contributing to the the bump up we saw in Q1 and coming into Q2, and would prove to be more temporary. Uh, certainly not inflationary, but more temporary. Okay, any any insight on that? Any uh, Ryan, you want to uh, put forward? No, I haven't heard the tipping thing. That's really interesting because leisure average hour earnings in leisure and hospitality uh, are up 17% annualized over the last three months, which is massive. Yeah. So that's something I, I want to dig into. That's really okay. interesting. So we're, we're already, this conversation has been going on for a while. Hard to believe. I mean, it's, it's been very good. Uh, but I, I'm going to open up, make this, uh, uh, usually I'm have this pretty well scripted, but let me just open it up a little bit. There's so many labor market issues we can talk about, you know, in the pandemic, on the other side of the pandemic, longer run. Dante, is there any issue out there you think we should, people, we should be talking about that we're, that people aren't talking about or something you want to call out about the labor market uh, that, you know, we should be thinking about uh, any, anything at all? It just this is a uh, a, a open-ended question. Uh, you can take it anywhere you want to take it. Sure. The one thing I've been thinking about a lot is what happens. By the way, this industry. better be good. This better be good. I, <laughs> right? I'll give you your money's worth. Okay. Go ahead. Right. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about childcare and and parents and the impact of the pandemic. And so one of the things I think is is key to watch is what happens to labor force participation for women coming out of the pandemic, right? We, we had a long period, 50 years, where there was big increases in participation. And then you know, basically from 2000 to 2020, it was essentially flat. It dipped. And then pre-pandemic, it basically got back to where it had been in the early 2000s and looked like it was you know, on its way higher and higher above, uh, I think, 77% is right about where it was pre-pandemic. And then obviously, it you know fell off a cliff. And so is there any sort of structural change as a result of the pandemic, as a result of people leaving the workforce to care for kids? Do they all come back? How long does that take? You know, I think in terms of policy, it, it begs questions about affordable childcare and, and things like that. If we're talking about increasing participation among women and parents more broadly, 
know, if we can make childcare more affordable, that makes that calculus to participate in the labor market uh, a lot easier for, for more families. And so I think that's the thing that I'm watching longer term. Got it. And you have, how many kids do you have? You've got, I think you've got two, two. And you, is your wife working? Is she working at home? Is she working at home? Yep. Both working at home. And uh, has the pandemic changed any of your uh, work arrangements? I mean, are you both going to go back to work or has this changed things for you in any way? My wife is still currently debating leaving her job. It's been an on again, off again, but we've survived 15 months now with our kids at home. And so it's just been less sleep. That's all the pandemic has done so far, Um, but we'll see. Yeah. So this, this is a very personal question for you, how this all plays out. So let us know what happens in your own family life and we'll get a pretty good grip, I think, on what the rest of the world is doing here. Okay, very good. I think it should be a reality TV show. No, 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 no. Uh, Maybe a spinoff of my reality. (laughs) I'm first. Yeah, all right. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Dante. Thanks for joining us and uh, great discussion and we could go on forever and I'm sure we will. We'll come back to the labor market in the not too distant future. Let me just say a couple things, a few things about the labor market. Uh, you know, first, and this is pretty obvious, uh, things are obviously moving in the right direction here. Uh, we are quickly uh, recovering from the pandemic. Um, I do think we're going to get something close to a half a million jobs per, per month uh, going forward until we get close to full employment which I would anticipate uh, by late 2022 going into 23. But the second thing is that's, that still feels like a long time from now. This is, you know, that just gives you a sense of how deep a hole the pandemic created for us and in, in the job market. And, uh, you know, we're still crawling out and it's going to take us, you know, perhaps as long as two years to get fully uh, out of this. And, and, it, and I, I think the thing, third thing I'd say is uh, on the other side of the pandemic, I do think, the uh, labor market's going to be front and center again. I mean, if you remember back prior to the pandemic, the number one business problem was a, a very tight labor market. Labor shortages were endemic. It was uh, top of mind uh, for uh, most business people. And that's our future. Uh, I think uh, we are going to have very tight labor markets. And uh, we are going to have to address it through policy. And we didn't talk about immigration. Uh, we're going to have to come back and talk about that at some point in the podcast. But immigration, a reversal of immigration patterns we are gonna, is going to have to occur. We need more immigrants. And, and when I say that, I mean, obviously, skilled workers, but also I think we're going to need a lot of unskilled workers uh, as well. And I do think uh, policies that uh, will help to bring down the cost of childcare, uh, allow uh, female and, and, and uh, participation in general to rise will be critical to ensuring that and, and of course, that was part of Biden's American Family Plan. Uh, I think uh, that was a significant part of it. But those are the kinds of policies we're going to need if we're going to have the workers uh, that uh, uh, that we're, we're going to need to be able to grow uh, and uh, uh, enjoy a solid growth uh, in the future. So there, there's going to be a lot to talk about here. Uh, but, but the good news is uh, on Jobs Day Friday, it, I have to say it feels pretty good. We, we are on our way back. So with that, uh, let's call it a podcast. Uh, Thank you for joining us and we will talk to you next week. Take care now. 